The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Please remain standing as we hear from the Word of the Lord. This is from uh, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. May God bless the reading of the You may be seated. for these people to see what you have shown me in your word. And God, I know that it's from a human perspective, it's impossible to sum up hours and hours of study and prayer into a one hour message. But we know that what we're about in moments like this is a supernatural thing. It's a work of the Spirit of God. As you come by your Spirit and give these people ears to hear. And as somehow, in a way that we'll never really fully understand in this life, you take this word and, and it's alive and it's, and it's active. And it does a work, a life-giving, transformative work, so that somehow, over these next 60 or so minutes, it's, for your people, it's not just gonna be the ramblings of a, of a man standing behind a chunk of wood. It's, it's going to be a man that you have called to herald, to proclaim, to cry out with your word, So we ask you to do it, to do the thing that you've done so many times week after week, to do it again this week, to bear down on us with the weight of your word and to change us. Guard my mouth from any stupid and unhelpful words, anything that is untrue. Guard these people's ears and their heart from anything that would not build them up and exhort and encourage and drive them deeper into dependence upon you. Father, we ask it for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We remain in this beautiful section here. Chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down through verse 22. I remind you that this is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and peace, peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the Apostle Paul cares a lot about peace and unity. He has a lot to say to us in this portion of Scripture about exactly that thing. If you've got a heading at the top of this section, beginning in verse 11, it probably says something like one in Christ. The Apostle Paul's thoughts about who he is is never separated from Christ. He is a man in Christ united and living and breathing and sustaining himself in Christ. And then when he thinks about the church, when he thinks about the company of the saints, he always thinks about us as one. We're one body, we're one man, we're one household, we're one people in Christ. The Apostle Paul cares a lot because God cares a lot about the concept of unity and of peace. As with all things, there's a couple of ditches that Christians tend to fall in. One of them is just a lack of concern for these kind of things. We live in such a consumer-driven, me-centered type of world that it's very easy to think, well, it's just about me and God. When it comes to matters of religion and, and salvation especially, it's just about me and God. I can take the word of God and go under a tree alone and that's enough for me. Just give me Jesus. I could do without the bride. The other ditch, though, is one in which we try to build unity or manufacture unity and peace in pragmatic ways. We know that unity and peace are important to God because he continues to bring it before our eyes. We know that it's a thing that marks out the true church of Christ. And so we look to the world and, and their practices and their programs and we ask them to show us how do we build unity? How do we manufacture unity? How do we make peace in the church? And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is bringing us between the lines. He's bringing us to the middle of the road. He's showing us just how impossible peace is with man. But then with God, nothing is impossible. Showing us not just the supernatural nature of this peace and this unity that we enjoy, but how precious it is and how costly it is. How much it costs God to purchase this peace and this unity that so many of us tend to take for granted. And so as I'm sure you are aware by now, he's making clear to us that this peace, it is found in Christ Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just a preacher of peace, he is the Prince of Peace. That he didn't just come to bring enemies together at a table and negotiate some type of a treaty. He didn't come and just teach us some nice practices and some better ways of thinking that are going to build unity amongst the people. He came to be our peace. In a phrase that I'm sure is becoming very repetitive to you on purpose, mind you. I say to you again this morning, if you have Christ, you have peace. If you don't have Christ, you will never have peace. That's the story that Paul is telling us here. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And so we spent the last several weeks together talking about the way in which Christ is this peace on the horizontal plane. How does Christ make peace amongst the people? Specifically, amongst two groups of people that were mortal enemies. The Jews and the Greeks. The Jews and the Gentiles. The chosen people of God and all the rest. How has Christ Jesus come and in his flesh made this peace? 
We talked first about the negative, how he tore down that dividing wall of hostility. Then last week we came back together and we talked about how something more was needed. You see, the wall of division can come down, but if the people aren't at peace, if they're not in unity with one another, it becomes, I had the thought last week as I was preaching, did any of your parents ever make you wear a buddy shirt? When two siblings can't get along, you go buy like a triple XL shirt and make the two kids put on the same shirt? By God, you're going to learn, learn to love each other. But that's not what God is doing in Christ Jesus. He's not creating for us a buddy shirt. That what we're doing in this place is it isn't that I tolerate Brian and Brian tolerates me for the sake of our father. That he's building real peace. As a matter of fact, what he says here is he's building one new man. That's what verse 15 said. That Christ did this, this breaking down of this dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man. And we explored that last week. In fact, that it is something that is new. He didn't take something that already existed and just tweak it around the edges. This was something that had never yet been. That just as God breathed the stars, he created this new people, this new person, this new man, this new humanity. In addition to this, he says that it's a man. This tells us that this isn't something that is organizational, but it's, it's living and it's vital and it's active and it's, it's organic. You can't tell where one part begins and another part ends. And because it's one new man, it's, it's um, indivisible, right? You can't take one piece and reject the rest. You can't love part of the body and hate the rest. You can't love one portion of the man and despise the rest. We come as a package. We come together as one new man. But that this new man is only found in Christ Jesus. That if you're not in Christ Jesus, you can't be a part of this new man. That's why we guard the front door. That's why we examine those that say they want to join their life to this one man. We rejoice when people say, I want to be a part of this. By the way, God says expressly in his word that part of the purpose, remember we went back to, to John 17 in the high priestly prayer, and he said, part of the purpose for me building this unity is so that the world may see and they may know. They may know the power of Christ Jesus. They may know that he truly is the son of God, that he has come, that he has died, that he has raised again, that he's doing this supernatural work, that we're a testimony to the world of the power of God. And so we rejoice when people come and say, I want to be a part of that. There's a love there that I've never seen anywhere else and a unity and a oneness. It's almost as if they are moving as one man. So we rejoice when people want to be a part of this, but we know that if they're not in Christ Jesus, it's never going to work. It's got to be a living active, a vital unity, the kind of unity that only God can do, that he only does in Christ Jesus. And again, it's God who's done it, God who's created it. Therefore, it's not up to us. What did I call you to do last week as we came to the supper together? To rest in the unity that he's built. It's not up to you. You can't do it. You'll only mess it up. Our purpose is to keep our eyes on him and rest in this thing that he has built. And so now we come as the Apostle Paul, he shifts from the horizontal plane and he draws our eyes to the vertical. And we shouldn't be concerned by the fact that he began with the horizontal and then moved to the vertical. Even though I've told you over and over and over again, the only true peace that ever comes, comes if we're at peace with God. It begins with peace with God. But the Apostle Paul, because he's speaking to a people, he begins at the ground level. He begins at the horizontal and now he moves to the vertical when he says in verse 16, let me read the whole text. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Then this morning's text, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace with God. Peace with God. That he might reconcile us both to God. To reconcile just means to exchange hostility for friendship. It means to change enmity for peace and unity and love. 
So that when he says here that he is killing the hostility, the question that we might ask, because we're talking so much about this dividing wall of hostility between the Gentile and the Jew, this unity and this peace that God makes by fulfilling the law expressed in commandments and ordinances, by being all that the ceremonial law had pointed forward to, the true Lamb of God, the true temple, the great high priest, that man only comes to God now through the curtain that is his flesh, that in tearing down that he has eliminated this horizontal this man-made hostility. But is that the hostility he's talking about here? Well, no. He's talking about hostility between man and God. But then we might ask, well, who's the party that carries the hostility? Is he speaking about our hostility towards God? You see, for many, that is the message. In many churches, the contemporary gospel message is something like this, that the primary concern, the primary purpose for Christ Jesus coming was to convince you to love God. Convince you to let your guard down, to forgive yourself and to love God. They paint the picture that man's primary concern is what he has to think about God. But I remind you that the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That the most important thing in the world is not what you think about God. It's what does God think about you? It's not whether you're feeling warm and fuzzy feelings about God. It is does God retain hostility towards you? Let me be clear. Christ Jesus most definitely came to show us the love of God. To express to us the nature of God. And the Holy Spirit absolutely comes to draw our hearts to God. We don't come to God against our will. We don't come to God kicking and screaming. We don't come to God holding on to hostility with God. But the thing that will matter on that last day is what does God think about me? That must be our primary concern. And that's what Paul is addressing right here. He's talking about this hostility that God had for man. So the next question we might ask is, what then is the basis of that hostility? Well, we know from the beginning of chapter 2 that it is sin and iniquity and lawlessness. That it's the, the very twisted nature of our heart expressing itself in outward evil deeds and evil thoughts and evil words. It's the disunity between man because of our lack of forgiveness and a refusal to assume the best about each other. That, that, that sin, that iniquity, failure to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves, that that is the thing that comes between us and God. That is the basis for this hostility. You remember, that's what made us children of wrath. It was because we were sons of disobedience. We were following the desires of our passion, the desires and passions of our flesh and of our heart, following after the prince of the power of the air. That's the problem. We have joined forces with the enemy. So when he says here that he is killing hostility, he's referring to God's hostility against you. God's enmity towards us. This enmity has been caused by our sin. By the curse that falls upon us because of our sin. And that that's the thing that must be dealt with. That's the purpose in Christ Jesus coming. To deal with the sin. To deal with the iniquity. To kill the hostility. Now, this had been promised all throughout the Old Testament. There are plenty of passages that pointed the people forward to the, the promise that God will not always hold these iniquities against you. I read to you from Isaiah 43, 25. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. He says in Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. You know this word. It's a said. For my own sake, I will blot out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will remember your iniquities no more. So great is his covenant love, his pursuing love, his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This was the promise. This was what the new covenant entailed for the people of God. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
And this is very much the language that the New Testament uses with regards to Christ Jesus and what he has done with our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Over and over and over again, the scripture makes clear. The problem is this. The curse that comes upon you is because of this. And God has promised to deal with it. That's the whole point of the but God in verse 4. You remember the weight of the bad news. And then piercing through the darkness came those two beautiful words, but God. You're a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, disobedience. But God will remember your sins no more. But God will cast your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west. Now, we know God can't just forget things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He understands all things. He forgets nothing. But again, I say for the sake of his own nature, his own name, based on the covenant promises that he has made, his steadfast love, he has promised to remember them no more. To never bring them to mind whenever he thinks about you, as he looks at you, to never look upon you as one who is still in sin. I don't know how this works. I'll tell you how it's been accomplished. But that he can look at you and no longer see your sin. No longer see you as a man under curse. No longer see you as an enemy. He has cast this hostility aside. He has killed, in fact, the hostility. That he can look and see in you nothing but the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus. So that he looks at you and truly he doesn't grit his teeth. He doesn't have to bear down and pretend. That truly he looks to you and sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of his son. The love that his son and his son alone deserves upon us. That's why he goes on to say that it isn't just that he has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. But think back to all that we have studied here in chapter 2. All that we studied throughout really the whole of this letter. That he's adopted us as sons so that he may lavish upon us the riches of his grace for all eternity. So he can bless us with every spiritual blessing. He's promised us an unfading and imperishable inheritance. We read in verse 6 that he has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. On and on and on he goes, making clear this isn't just that the hostility has been killed, it's that great blessing has been received. This isn't just, okay, we have a peace treaty with one another. Okay, the war has been stopped. Okay, we've come to a truce. No, this is love. This is blessedness. This is favor. This is enduring kindness. This is the lavish, the, uh, to be lavished with the riches of his grace for all eternity. This is the picture of this reconciliation that he's talking about here. Now, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here for reconciliation, the word reconciliation, if you just type in the English word reconciliation into Bible software, you'll find it all over the Bible. But you find this particular word only three times. This Greek word, you find it used only three times. Once here... And then twice by Paul in the book of Colossians, in the parallel to this morning's text, we read, speaking of the preeminence of Christ, we read, for in him, this is Colossians 1:19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, there's the word, to reconcile to himself all things. Now the picture there in Colossians is, is of God reconciled the whole of the universe to Christ. Now, this isn't a universalistic message, this isn't a promise that all humanity will be saved. But it's it's God's promises are global. They're cosmic. They're universal. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that all things will be restored under King Jesus when the final day comes. But what he's telling us here in Ephesians is, is that we're a microcosm of this. We're the preview of this. Do you understand this? That the unity that God is building in Christ, in his church, is a preview to the world of what comes in the last days of the last days. A bit of a foretaste, if you will. We're meant to express this to the world. They can see this. That they themselves could long for heaven. Can long for the new creation. Can see the lion laying down with the lamb. The baby putting his hand over the adder's den. I don't even know what an adder is. Is that like a snake or is it a spider? Or is it a scorpion? Snake is an adder. 
They see pictures and faint shadows of that even in this church. So he says here that he's reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. See, it deals with the hostility of our own mind as well. He has now reconciled, done, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we see this, this word. I'm not going to bore you by telling you what the Greek word is. I'll just tell you that it is prefix on top of prefix on top of verb. It, it, not a Greek scholar, but those who are say they can't find this word anywhere else. It's almost as though Paul coined the word. It's almost as if he looks to this reconciliation that comes and he says, this is so unlike anything I've ever seen in all the world. This is so unlike anything I've ever seen amongst man. I've got to create a word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Will that work? I'm going to create a word that points only to this. That shows you the radical nature of this transform of God's thoughts about you. Now again, reconciliation is talked about all throughout Scripture. The idea that God is, He had a purpose in sending His Son, is to bring us near. Isn't that what the text says? That you who once were far off were brought near. How near? Into the very Holy of Holies. Into the very presence of God. So how does He do this? How does He do this? Because God can't just pass over sins. He can't just act like they did not and be the just and holy judge of the universe. Now, I didn't be the God that I spoke about at the beginning of our call to worship. So how can God be the thrice holy God of the universe and just forget sins and just receive sinners into his presence like this? Well, Paul says that this reconciliation takes place. There's two things I draw your attention to. One in one body. Again, it's a reminder of the fact that there are two paths to God. There's not the Jewish way of salvation and then the Gentile way of salvation. There's not those who keep the law and earn their own righteousness and those who receive grace in Christ Jesus. There's only one way. There's only one way of redemption, one path of salvation. That's why it says in verse 17 that he came and preached peace to who? You who were far off, the Gentiles, and who else? You who were near. This is an incredibly difficult passage, or incredibly difficult teaching for so many Jewish people to receive. We talked last week about the counsels that were necessary and the rebuke of Paul to Peter and the fact that God had to speak from heaven to Peter to make clear what he was doing in this. It's not an easy message for these people to receive. And I told you that I have to believe that at least in part it's because they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, we have lived under the weight of this law for our whole lives. I get a boil and I can't go to church. My wife has a kid and she can't come to church. I accidentally touch a dead body and I can't come and be with God's people. I've lived my whole life knowing that there's an uncleanliness that comes on me just on the basis of my humanity. By nature, I'm a man who is constantly finding himself unclean and I've lived with the weight of that. And now you're telling these Gentile dogs, having never lived one moment under that weight, that they have free access into the very throne room of God? Now, that might sound foreign to us because we've not lived in a day where we felt this tension between the Jew and the Gentile. But certainly you can see some analogies here. Do you, do you remember, when, remember when Jesus turned the rich young ruler away? He made an offer to the guy, but ends up the guy turns and goes away because Jesus loved him. He told him the truth. And you remember Peter says, we left everything. We've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever look at the world around you chasing after these worldly things and you say, God, I've left everything. I've given up all the good things this world dangled before me to follow you. I've lived under the weight of your word. I've sought to please you and to honor you. It's cost me friendship. It's cost me career. It's cost me my finances. It's cost me the right to be offended. It's cost me and it's cost me and it's cost me. And you're telling me that some dude's going to come to the end of his life. He's going to say a sincere prayer at the end of his life, beat his breast as the sinner that he is. And you allow that man to come marching into the kingdom of God. He says to you, yes, 
So he's saying that there is only one way. There is only one body. That if you have Christ, you have peace. If you don't have Christ, you don't have peace. But he also says that he comes and he makes us reconciled to God only in him through the cross. Jesus Christ, of course, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God only through Christ Jesus. There is no end around. There is no alternate way. There is no back route. We got stuck on the bridge coming home from Florida um, from our vacation, whatever that was, a couple of weeks ago. You know the world's longest bridge? We got stuck in the middle of that bridge and I watched as people tried to figure out a way around. There ain't no way around it, guys. It's the world's longest bridge. There's one path. There's one way. There's one road. It is in Christ Jesus. But not just through Christ Jesus generally, through the cross. Making obvious. And that's all throughout this text. Verse 13, brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that brings us near to God. Verse 16, that we're in here. Reconciled to God through the cross. Colossians, the parallel text, that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. He's speaking here to the substitutionary atoning death of Christ Jesus our Lord. But the thing that had to happen was the curse, the enmity, the hostility, the hatred that God had for us and for our sins had to fall upon his son. He had to die in our stead. He had to give his life. He had to pay the punishment. Because God can't simply forgive sins. Are there things God can't do? Yes. He can't just ignore sin. Why can't he just forgive? I told you before, you hear this message from the world. Of course God forgives. That's what he does. He's God. Wrong. How then can God forgive sins? 2 Corinthians 5.19 that says that in Christ Jesus, he was, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Therefore, he goes on to say, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That there was an exchange that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. That there at the cross, he who knew no sin took our sin upon him. That just as God looks to you today and sees in you nothing but the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He looked to his son there upon the cross and he saw your sin and gave it its just deserts. Treated his son like the sinner. So that he could treat you like his son. That's the trade. The double imputation that happens there at the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were, like, for you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. You once were far off and you now have been brought near. Why? Because he bore your sins upon a tree. In his flesh, in his body. Why did Jesus become a man? In large part for this, that he could bear your sins, that he could stand in as your substitute. That he could die in your stead. And I can't say this too many times. Can't camp out on this long enough that this is why Christ Jesus came. Not simply to show you how much God loves you, not simply to tell you how much God loves you, but to come and to take the hatred that God has for sin and sinners upon himself. He didn't come. This is the meaning of the cross. Not simply to come and to show us man's hatred for God. Some people treat, teach this message, right? That Christ Jesus came. He came to express the love of God to the world, but then man expressed their hatred towards God and killing their son. And then it just showed us one more sin that God was willing to overlook. This shows us the massive and infinite nature of God that he was willing to forgive even those who took the life of his own son. Beloved, they, he is willing to forgive the sins of those who took the life of his own son expressly because his son laid down his life. It's all about a thing that actually happened at the cross. How many times have I asked you what actually happened at the cross of Jesus Christ? I find that so many men that struggle with many of the doctrines that we teach in this church, you ask them what actually happened at the cross? And you find out that there's a very emotive, superficial, unbiblical understanding of what the cross of Jesus Christ actually represents. 
Now, it can feel very forensic and transactional, right? Our sin upon him, his righteousness upon us. But that's the way that Jesus Christ spoke, isn't it? That the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. There was an exchange. There was a trade. There was a ransom that happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. That this was the price of our peace. You can know what your peace cost. You know, there's times when you do things for your children and you, you, you say to your spouse or you say to someone else, they will never know how much that cost this. They will never know the price that I paid that they could enjoy this. And we will never fully comprehend the worth of Christ. How can you consume the infinite in a finite mind? You can't. But as much as we are able, the God of the universe intends for us to look and recognize this is the cost of your peace, your horizontal peace and your vertical peace. You see why he's so jealous for the church? You see why he speaks with such anger against those who would build division and disunity in the church? He says, this is what that unity cost. This is what peace with me and peace with man cost. Most expensive thing in all the universe. The life of his own son, his beloved son. So, I think there's three big takeaways from this. Be proud of me, I am, I am channeling my inner real preacher. This, this is a three point sermon you're getting. It's not, though, what's it called where all the letters match? What is it, alliteration? It's not an alliteration. I could probably make one up on the fly. So I don't know that it actually counts. And you don't have a bulletin with any blanks to fill in, so it definitely doesn't count. Takeaway number one, though, is that the cross of Jesus Christ was God's idea. It was his plan, it was his purpose for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It wasn't coincidental, it wasn't accidental, it wasn't a response to something that just happened. Go to Acts 2.23, it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.27, you remember that the church is praying in the middle of great persecution. They're saying, surely gathered in this city together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed was both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined. You didn't just know this was going to happen, God. You predestined the lamb who was slain from when? From before the foundation of the world that you predestined that this plan, that this purpose, that this will, that the cross of Jesus Christ would take place. This isn't a matter of, this isn't a question of reformed theology or anything else. This is the very nature of your redemption. Most fundamental understanding of the cross, the centerpiece of our faith. The cross was God's plan all along. While we read in Isaiah 53.10 that it pleased the Lord to crush him. In some way that we will never fully understand, it pleased the Father to crush the Son that his love may fall upon you. This was the fullest display of God's wrath and his mercy side by side. His justice and his love seen in one place in ways that it couldn't otherwise be seen, right? Many people ask, why is there evil in the world? Why would God allow sin to come into the world? It is this. How would we know mercy? How would we know forgiveness? How would we know has said and steadfast love? Were there not sins that God was overlooking? How do we know of his justice and his holiness and his wrath and his righteousness? Were there not sins that he were punishing? And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see those two things coming together perfectly as one. In one body, in one flesh, in one cross, we see it more clearly than anywhere else in all the universe. We know that it was all done according to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. Going all the way back before the foundation of the world, the father said, son, I will send you and I will give you a people. 
And the son says, Father, I will go and I will purchase that people. And the spirit says, I will go and I will apply what you have done to win those people, to bring those people, to change those people, to wash those people that they may be a pure and precious and spotless and wrinkle-free bride. It wasn't a response. It wasn't God making lemonades out of lemons. But God in Christ was doing something. Something incomparable and unimaginable expression of his love. Christ wasn't turning God into a loving father. He loved and that is why he sent his son. He could express this love towards unworthy sinners in ways that would be completely impossible. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Are you a good person? But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I read this to give you assurance earlier. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? He wouldn't spare the most valuable thing in all the universe. You think he's going to withhold from you food? Or shelter or grace or mercy that you need to make it through the finish line? Takeaway one is the cross is the purpose and the plan and the will of God. Takeaway number two, and this one may not be as immediately evident, right? That one, you're not surprised by this. Takeaway two, though, may not be as immediately evident to you. If we cannot have peace with others unless we have peace with God. If you cannot have peace with others and you cannot have peace within yourself unless you have peace with God. And if you cannot have peace with God unless you have Christ Jesus and him crucified. Then the gospel is the answer, isn't it? The answer for what? Everything. The gospel is the answer for everything. How many people grew up believing? How many people have been taught to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer for conversion? But doesn't have a whole lot to say to me in my troubles. Doesn't have a whole lot to say to me about persevering and running through the finish line and fighting the good fight all the way to the end. The cross of Jesus Christ doesn't have much to say to me when troubles come, when suffering happens, when the world gets real and loud and angry and hurtful. But I tell you this morning, you don't ever outgrow the gospel. The answer for all things. What does the Apostle Paul say? 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the grace that was purchased for you there at the cross of Jesus Christ. His righteousness upon you, your sin upon him. That's the sustaining grace. That's the same thing that's applied to you here at this table as you come and receive Christ and you feast upon him. You remember him and him crucified. You remember the resurrection. You remember that he is the father's right hand. It's the gospel that sustains us. So that a man must always be preaching the gospel to himself. The answer is always the gospel. Not just when your assurance feels particularly weak. Not just when you're feeling particularly sinful and struggling to, to break free from bondage to sin. In all times, the gospel is the answer. Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. That's the gospel. There's no hope in God apart from Christ and him crucified. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's what Paul's doing here. That's the format to his letter. Before we get to the imperatives and all the commandments and all the things that we're meant to do, he's saying, hope in God. See the completed work of God in Christ. Beloved, I tell you, that's the answer. I don't have time. I can tell I don't have time to go into this as deeply as I would. This will be a standalone message at some point in the very near future. But you have to listen to me. The world has nothing for you. We come to our children and we say to our children, the gospel of Jesus Christ is everything. Believe in God, hope in God. He is the God of your salvation. And then something bad happens. Our marriage gets hard. Money runs out. We become depressed or anxious or hurt in some way. And immediately we say, we got to go find some experts. We got to go find some professionals. We got to go find some doctors. No, you look to your child and you say, hope in God. You are the expert. Do you hear me? Do you understand the blessing that God has given your children by raising them in a Christian home? They don't need therapy. They don't need psychology. They don't need the wisdom of this world. It is poison. They need the word of God. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them over and over and over again. What if it doesn't work? What do you count as working? If your desire is peace with others and peace with God and peace within their soul, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not more the poison that put them there in the first place. That's what he's doing in this church. You will get hurt. In the next 12 months, you're going to get hurt in some way. It just happens. And I'm telling you that the answer for that hurt is in this word. And the way that this word will be ministered to you is in this body. It's in your living room. It's in your friend's home. It's in a church office. It's in this room right here as you struggle to come to this table and receive Christ. The gospel is the answer. For what? For everything. And Paul's going to talk about a lot here, isn't he? When we get to chapter 4 and he shifts gears, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, we don't build the unity, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's going to talk about relationships between slaves and master, parents and children, husband and wife, all manner of relationship within the church. What's the answer to the problems there? The gospel of Jesus Christ that he just spent three chapters laying out for us. He's going to talk about all manner of sin, deceitful desires, the corruption of life, falsehood, anger, theft, corrupt talk, bitterness, wrath, slander, malice, sexual immorality, covetousness, filthy talk, rude joking, wasting time, drunkenness. What's the answer for all those things? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the done of the gospel, not the do of self-righteousness. The answer for all of it is the done, the completed, the finished. We have been reconciled to God in Christ. That's the answer, the only answer. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? Because life gets loud and pain is real. And we have the world around us convincing us that the gospel really isn't the thing. Yeah, 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 that's cute. That's a church answer. It's the gospel is enough. But I got a real problem sitting in front of me. You're telling me the gospel is the answer? Convincing you that you are foolish. That you're doing harm to yourself and to those that you love. 
But resting in this gospel and this gospel alone. It's hard. I've looked in the eyes of enough people to know it's hard. As I look to them and I say the gospel is enough. And what their eyes are saying to me is I want to believe with everything in me. But what if it doesn't work? What about when we're crying out with King David? His words in Psalm 69, the water is rising and the waves are coming over the top and the, the rocks are slippery and I can't find anywhere to put my feet. Or in Psalm 6 where he says, I've soaked through my pillow with tears. My eyes are wasting away. He says, my bones are melting within me. What do I do then? Is then when we so desperately need the unity that he has built on the horizontal plane. That's point number three. No man is saved by himself. It says that he's reconciled us both to God in one body. Now I preach this text I don't remember how long ago. It was a long time ago. Before I think I even thought maybe there's some chance God was calling me to be a, a pastor. And I, I preached. Remember how I used to do it? I think I probably preached the whole book of Ephesians in one sitting. And I'd ask you not to go back and try to find that sermon because it is so bad. And, and I don't mean style. And I don't mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean any of that. But I was thinking back to a, an analogy that I made then that is so completely untrue. What I said was something to this effect that as I stand on this platform, if I call every single child in this room to me, just picture Sunday night, right, or Wednesday night, all the kids come. Why are they coming? They're coming to the candy bowl, right? They're coming to see me. That if I say, okay, kids, everybody, it's time for candy. Everybody come here and all the kids come to me, that by default, they're all coming together. That you coming to me means you also coming together. I've made it into a byproduct. Do you understand? In that message, I made the unity into a, a side effect. As opposed to the plan. The purpose of what God is doing. And this is in part because we have, again, such an individualistic view of the gospel, of salvation, of religion, of spiritual matters. We're, we're so... We're so self-focused in all of these things. Now, let me make clear. There was a moment, and it was just you. There may have been others in the room. You may have been among the 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost. There were 3,000, but God was working with each one of them. The hearts of each one of them. That's why Ephesians 1.13 says that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There was a moment when you heard the gospel. And in that moment, you heard and you believed and you were saved. And it may have been just you in that moment. But the problem is we tend to just stop there. Just again, I say, me and God. That's in part why men have such a hard time, I believe, with the, um, with the, the biblical picture of us as the bride of Christ. You're not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. But we stop right here at this individualistic picture. But we see that's not the way Jesus spoke. It's not the way the Bible spoke. Think about the way that he prayed in John 17. Not even just the men standing in front of him. I pray not, I pray not for the world. I pray for these whom you have given me. And for those who will believe because of their testimony. That they may be one Perfectly one, even as you, Father, and I am one. Jesus' prayer. He had two prayers or two requests in that prayer on the night before he died. What were they? I want him to be with me, Father, in heaven. I want him to see the glory that was mine from before the foundation of the world. And I want him to be one. Two main topics of prayer, and that's one of them. Do you see it? This is why he speaks in these terms of one body and one people and one humanity and one household. And in the Old Testament saints, they would have got this, right? What you think about after the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites come through and um, uh, 
what's the name of the guy? One of the tent make, one of the guys that made the tabernacle, Bezalel or something like this, right? So, so the, so the craftsman, right? He doesn't get there and go, well, look at this, two million of us. You decided to come too. Isn't that great? I'm just glad that y'all came too. I'm glad you found a lamb. Y'all, you got the same message I got. That is, that is something, man. I thought there was a chance I was gonna have to make this trip by myself. But look at us here, two million. of God. They were one people of God. Did God work on each of them individually? Yes. Did the heads of the household have to decide to take the lamb and follow the commandments and follow Moses? Yes. Absolutely. But they knew this wasn't some massive crowd of disparate individuals. This was a people. How many times does the Old Testament talk about the people of God presenting themselves before God as one man? Whenever the Israelites cross through the Jordan River, you, you, you got the priests and the ark and they're there in the middle of the Jordan River and the water has stopped. And it says, until they all, until they all had crossed through as, as on dry water. When God's speaking about calling his people out of Israel, he says, out of Egypt, excuse me, he says, out of Egypt, I call my son. One singular people. So again, I tell you, this unity that we enjoy, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's not a side effect, it's the point, not the ultimate point, it's that we might be reconciled to God. But that we're also reconciled as one, as one new man. And then this isn't just a, here's a thing he's done and here's a thing he's done. It isn't just, I want them to be with me, Father, to see my glory. And by the way, completely disconnected to that, I want them to be one. I submit to you this morning, what he's saying is, I want them to be with me to see my glory. And to make that happen, make them one. He's building one new people. Think about this. I'm going to go over today, I'm sorry. Think about this. You were saved in a moment in time. Your conversion happened in a moment in time. Absolutely. You were at a church camp. You were in your bedroom. You were at a, at a worship service. It happened at one moment in time. But we were all chosen by God from before the foundation of the world at the same time. Christ Jesus died to purchase our redemption 2,000 years ago at the same time. And we will all come into our final glory at the same time. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. That Abel, Abel died 6,000 years ago. He has been absent with the body. He is home with the Lord way longer than you will be. But he does not get his final reward. He does not come into his final glory one second sooner than you do. That's how much it matters. That's how much it matters. Now this might seem like some just some good Bible trivia, right? Like we can all go to 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and read the promise. The people there were more worried about the ones that had already died. They weren't worried that the ones that died already got their reward. They were worried that they had missed their reward. But Paul's making clear, look, we all come into glory at the same time. Christ Jesus returns with a shout of command, with the sound of the trumpet. He comes, the dead in Christ come with him. We too are united with him. As one people, we come into this new heavens and this new earth which has been created that we can enjoy Christ in glory for all time? It's just Bible trivia? No, I submit to you that it is so very critical that I'm willing to go over and show you. Scripture all throughout says that he who perseveres to the end will be saved. You've got to run through the finish line. You've got to finish the race. You've got to fight the fight. Don't stop short. Don't harden your heart. Don't fail to enter the rest. Understanding there were a lot of people that went through the Red Sea and they didn't go to the promised land. They didn't run through. So scripture all over says this, while at the same time saying, I will not lose one from my hand. My father will not lose one from his hand. How so? Turn with me to 11, uh, Hebrews 11.39. I'm going to... I'm going to preach this text tonight. I decided in about three minutes in my shower this morning that we're going to, we've already had a three week, three week break from Ruth. So it's okay to take one more week because I want to show you this in more detail. But the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is keep running. 
Keep going. Don't stop. Don't coast. Don't pull up short. Don't meander. Don't wander. Amanda won't go shopping with me anymore because she says I'm a moseyer. He's saying don't mosey. Run. Run with purpose. Run with intent. And then in Hebrews 11, he lays out all the heroes of the faith. All those men who counted Christ Jesus as worth more than anything this world has to offer. Talks about all the things they did. Not because those things earned salvation, but they evidenced he is worth more. All those who ran with purpose. And then he says this, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you understand? Why did they run so hard? Why did they run with so much intention? Why did they not count the things of this world as worthy of Christ? Because they had a promise. A promise of what? Glory. Resurrection. A new heavens and a new earth. And he's saying here they didn't receive it. Why? Because God didn't live up to his promises? No. Because the body has not yet come in full. That we would all receive it together. That apart from you, they would not be made perfect. Do you see it? But he goes on. Therefore, because of that, because of that thing being true, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's, it's this picture of them having finished their race. They could all say with Paul, I have fought the fight. I have run the race. I've finished the course. I'm here. I'm absent, with the absent from the body and I'm home with the Lord. But I want my final reward. I'm ready for glory. I don't wish that I would be unclothed, but greater clothed, more clothed, glory clothed. And so I finish my race and what do I do? I circle back and I watch you people run. But I'm not just watching, I'm standing there as a witness. My life to you is a witness. So that we can look at whoever he's talking about that got sawed in two. And we can say, he ran, I can run. Christ is worth more than he must, for him he must be worth more for me. They're standing there as witnesses saying, we're not super saints. We were sinners. We were weak. We were tired. We were imprisoned. We stumbled. We fell. Think about some of the people that are listed in the heroes of the faith. Samson made it in. And they stand there commending to us, keep running. Keep running. He goes on to say, keeping our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not the running the way that the world runs. It's a run of faith. It's a run of preaching the gospel and believing the gospel. How do we do it? Because they are there. There are witnesses there. Cheering and witnessing and showing forth. Two more texts and then we'll finish. But I gotta make one more one more point here. I think this kind of witnessing that, that whoever wrote Hebrews, probably Paul, is, is saying here, I think you get a taste of it every time we do take the Lord's Supper. The beauty of the way that we do it is you sit in your chair and you watch your brothers and sisters come to this table. And surely something in your heart is overwhelmed with the sense they're still going. I know what they're dealing with. I know what it costs them to be here. I know what they have sacrificed. That they would not lose the faith. That they would keep running. Look at their endurance. Look at the way they fight. And it strengthens you. That's the picture he's painting here. But it's not just that. Two more. Hebrews 10, 19. This is the text that's so often read out of context. Oh yeah, that's the text that tells me I gotta go to church, right? Well, yes, you gotta go to church. But he, he begins 1019 down through 1021, just talking about 22, talking about this new path through Christ Jesus. But verse 23, in light of that, because there is a new and living way through the veil that is his flesh, because we can now come boldly in the presence of God, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, that's all anybody hears. Okay, so I got to go to church. Is that all this is about? Just come to church? Check the box, come to church, and I'm a good boy? 
No, you come together so that what? You may build each other up. You may stir each other up. You may spur each other on. There's a spurring on and a building up that happens just from your presence. You know this. As your brothers and sisters see you endure. As you, as you say with the whole of your life, he's worth more. You understand, every time you show up in this place, you're announcing to the world, he's worth more. Time you show up on a Wednesday night, he's worth more. Time you show up on a Sunday night, he's worth more. You gather in a small group, in a Bible study, in a home. You show up for a brother in need. Every time you're saying, he's worth more. You're preaching this truth to them and encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We get closer and closer and closer to that day. We don't let our foot off the gas. We press harder. And lastly, the text that Carrie read for us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. How long is today until he comes back? As long as there's life in your body. But exhort each other every day as long as it's called day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's this double work that's happening here. We're commending to each other. He's worth more. We're exhorting and building up each other. He's worth more. At the same time, we're saying, and sin's a liar. Sin's a lie. The things of this world will never satisfy you. That's the purpose of what he's building here. The purpose of what he's doing here. And that's the way in which he is reconciling us all to God in one body in Christ Jesus. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, I thank you for this people. They're so very gracious and patient with me. Attentive to your word. I, I praise you and thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would just help us to see what you have done and to see exactly what it cost you to purchase it. And then, Father, from that place, from that place, we would be strengthened and we would be changed. Father, we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You go to sing your feet. We're going to sing God's song. Praise God from the